live from Earth, it's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an exciting show for you today where we are welcoming an amazing special guest. But before I introduce her, I do want you to know that this show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Austin, Texas, Scottsdale, Arizona, Cincinnati, Ohio, the Queen City, tuning in Edinburgh, UK, Howell, New Jersey. I've got Dubai. Buke, Iowa, London, UK, Columbus, Ohio. I never got into the whole sea bus thing, by the way. And Bristol, Indiana, and more in Amsterdam coming in at the very last second. Thank you, everyone, all space cadets, for tuning in. Now, this is going to be a very, very fun half hour because I'm very excited to introduce Abigail Harrison, a.k.a. Astronaut Abby. She dreams of being an astronaut. She is not the only one, but her dreams don't stop there. No, she means business. She dreams of becoming the first astronaut to travel to Mars, and she is well on her way to achieving that goal. When she was 18, she founded the Mars Generation. When I was 18, I was playing video games, but when astronaut Abby was 18, she founded the Mars Generation, a 501c3 nonprofit to help educate and excite people of all ages about space exploration and STEM education. Abby graduated from Wellesley College in 2019 in degrees in biology and Russian. Duh, that's the only one I got. And plans to enter graduate school in the fall of 2021. That's this year. Her first book, Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars, was published in January by Penguin Random House. You can learn more about Abby by visiting astronautabby.com. Abby Astronaut Abby, is that your official title? Do I need to include that every time I reference you? <laughs> no, you're welcome to if you want, but it's actually something that just grew out of that was my childhood nickname was Astronaut Abby. Very and cool. uh, everyone likes some alliteration, right? So you're welcome to call it, me Abby. It works. Instead. It works. Yeah, uh, there's there's nothing there's nothing pleasant that alliterates with Paul, and so it's just Paul for me. Uh, so why did you get this nickname, Astronaut Abby? I think I can guess, but I'd love to hear it. So I have wanted to be an astronaut my entire life, ever since I was probably about three or four years old. That's actually my first memory of wanting to be an astronaut is from that early age. And I talked about it incessantly throughout my entire childhood. And uh, so it was really a natural thing for, for my family and my friends and everyone to call me Astronaut Abby. And it definitely turned into a title that kind of took off once I started using social oh, media I get as it. a science communicator. Sorry, I have to interrupt you because... <laughs> That was perfect, right? Thanks. Yeah, you'll see how many puns I can slip in there throughout okay, the... Okay, <laughs> I've got one. I've got one noted. Continue, please. Sorry for the interruption. My video editor used to actually, because I released a series of videos um, called Ask Abby, which is a show about space and science on my YouTube channel, and it's filled with terrible space puns. And he used to put in like a little ding noise every time that I made a space pun, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a lot of fun. <laughs> But yeah, so that's really part of why I, even though I'm 23 years old now and most people have grown out of their childhood nicknames, mine has stuck around because now I use it as my handle for science communication through social media. Um, and it's really, really fun to get to talk to everyone about my passion for space and STEM education and uh, go around with this fun name. 
Yeah, so so let's talk about the STEM education. I really want to get started with your book, Dream Big: How to Reach for Your Stars. Uh, who's the audience for this book? Who should who should read it, and why did you write that? Write it for them. Yeah, so Dream Big: How to Reach for Your Stars um, is it's a guidebook that will help anyone actually achieve, figure out what it is that they're passionate about, what their dreams are, and then take actionable steps towards achieving that dream. And so I I think it's really appropriate for anyone, but it is specifically geared towards a slightly younger audience. So anywhere within um, grade school students, middle school students, high schoolers, college kids, all of those ages would really be a great range for this book. And I I wrote it because I've been chasing after this big dream of mine for about two decades now. I first decided, like I said, that I wanted to be an astronaut when I was three. And it's I'm 23 now, so I can officially say that it's been two full decades, which is such a weird thing to say. Like, feel old when I say that. But <laughs> I've been chasing after this big dream. And during that time, I've gotten the opportunity to meet a lot of really incredible people, both in the space industry and in other industries. And I've gotten to learn from them and pick up all these skills and tools that have helped me to chase my own dream. And I've also learned some of the things the hard way. Um, And I decided that it was really important to me to make sure that I passed along all of those experiences, all of those skills and tools that have helped me be successful so far, and hopefully Bear will, will do so in the future as well. Um, to young people. And I have to say that when I started thinking about this book and when I started writing it, we weren't in a global pandemic, but now publishing it during 2021, it really feels like an important time to be publishing a book like this because I think that there are a lot of people out there and especially a lot of young people who are looking for some guidance and who are looking for some hope and some uh, some sort of a path forwards to figure out where to go. And I think that Dream Big, it's, it's the best time that I could imagine to be publishing something like this because I think that it's really helpful and useful. Yeah, and, and any opportunity to get away from the earth, we will definitely take. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what are, drop some pearls here. What are, what are some words of advice that you wish you had gotten when you were this age? I know that's the entire book, but like, like what's, what's, what's the highlight? What's the big takeaway? You know, the audience here, the space, that's, there are a lot of parents with young kids, uh, with young boys and young girls who, who are passionate about space or passionate about whatever in, in so many fascinating ways. What are some things that you wish you had learned, especially early on? Yeah, absolutely. So like you said, there's a lot of, of great stuff in Dream Big, but I will key you in on what I think is my favorite piece of advice. And it's something that I wish that I'd learned earlier and really internalized and knew about earlier, which is that for anyone, but especially for anyone who's chasing after a dream to prepare for failure and to prepare to fail, which sounds kind of negative when I say it, but the reality that I've learned and This is one of those things where I said that I I learned a lot from getting to meet people who have actually achieved their dreams, meeting astronauts and incredible scientists and engineers and all these people. But I've also learned some things the hard way. And this was one of them that I feel like I learned the hard way, which is that every dream has failure along the way towards it. And I think that we live in a society where oftentimes 
we, we don't talk a lot about failure and about what happens around failure and about the fact that it's normal and it's natural, it's part of life. I think that instead we tend to look at failure as a reflection of who we are and our ability to achieve our dreams where I think it's actually the opposite, that if you're not failing, you're probably not on the right path towards actually achieving your dream because when you fail, that's how you learn. That's how, that's one of, in my opinion, I look back on some of the failures that I've had and they, they hurt at the time. They weren't fun at the time that they were happening, but now with some, some um, distance, I can look back on them and I can say that was probably the most important thing that the best thing that could have happened to me in that instance, because it changed the way that I was going about this dream. It changed the decisions I was making. It changed the path that I took. And I really think that that's something that defines failure and how we react to it when it happens is actually what defines our ability to succeed at our dreams. You'll either encounter a failure along the road and you'll look at it as the end and you'll stop striving towards your dreams or you'll encounter that and you'll look at it and say how can i how can i learn from this how can i use this as a stepping stone instead of a roadblock um and i think that that's really the most important piece of advice i could give to anyone no that's absolutely beautifully said how, how failure is part of the process of achieving your dream and, and you say you hit the nail on the head if you're not failing then you're not pursuing your dreams uh speaking of failure a couple weeks ago nasa did the test run of the full block of the sls and it ended early because of some some uh sensor issues and this this one failure might set off a chain reaction which delays the entire sls and project artemis and the return to the moon and all the progress for mars Uh, when do you think we will reasonably get back onto the moon and actually have some missions to to the red planet absolutely so i think that um i always have to preface these types of questions with the fact that i can't give any specific dates um, but I can give you what I think is a, a reasonable estimate. I think that I think that it's very reasonable that the Artemis program is going to be up and running um, within the next couple of years. I think that the 2020s are the decade that we're going to have people on the moon. I think that that's unquestionably true. Um, I think that that. Uh, like you said, there was a slight setback a couple of weeks ago, but that's actually not unexpected. That's that's really a part of anything and especially a part of um, of space exploration is that you have these minor setbacks and you have to continue trekking forward with them. So I definitely think that the mid 2020s is going to be a good time to keep your eyes out for uh, for boots on the moon, for sure. As for Mars, that one's a little bit farther into the future. And the reason for that is is because it's a lot more difficult. <laughs> Obviously, it's a lot more difficult than going to the moon. It's also something that we've never done before. And when you think about a mission to Mars, you have to think not just about the transportation aspect, which there's a lot of conversation around the transportation aspect of going to Mars right now. Um, what with NASA and with other private industry companies like SpaceX and other companies talking about that. But the reality of a trip to Mars is that it requires a lot more than just transportation to get there and back. You also have to have things like radiation protection. 
You have to have the ability to grow foods to sustain astronauts. You have to figure out how to land much larger cargoes on the surface of Mars, all of these kinds of things. And that's just a sampling of the, the issues that we have to and challenges that we have to solve in order to successfully have a human mission to Mars. Now that said, I don't wanna be a pessimist by saying there are all these problems um, because the, the fortunate thing and the exciting thing is is that there have been people working on these problems for decades and people who continue to work really hard on all of them right now. And so I think that it's a very reasonable estimate to say that sometime within the 2030s, maybe mid 2030s, maybe late 2030s, I think that's very reasonable to say we could have humans on the surface of Mars and uh, hopefully this human. Hopefully this human. Yeah, you mentioned all these like amazing technological uh, hurdles that we have to face in order to send a mission to Mars. And a mission to Mars is like around two years round trip, right? Like six months out and then like nine months there for the orbits to align again. And then six months back or like, so, you know, it, it adds up very, very quickly. So if you want to go to Mars, there's not going to be a lot of space. And there's also this very, very fascinating. I mean, there's going to uh, be a lot of of space but <laughs> that's number two that's number two okay i'm writing that one down that okay that's our second space pun thank you for catching that uh, we're only at that. two so far oh yeah so far we've been playing it pretty straight i think we should up our game so. <laughs> um, there's also these uh, very interesting uh, personality and sociological questions of having a half dozen humans cooped up in the same space for an extremely long amount of time under very high pressure, intense, dangerous situations. Uh, why should anyone be locked up in a room with you for six months? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm really a fun person. I promise. I guarantee that everyone who knows me would say, yeah, yeah, maybe not everyone. My sister might say, mm, mm. maybe not so much, but most people who know me would look at me and say that I'm a good team player that I'm relatively fun to be around, that my space puns aren't that bad. Um, but it, it, is, it is such a good question because when we think about missions to Mars, that's one of the things that we just haven't had to think about that much for, um, for things like missions to the moon. Uh, these much shorter term missions. And one of the things that's even different from, let's say, a six month stint on the International Space Station or a year long stint on the International Space Station, there are two things I think that make a, a mission to Mars so much different from that. One of them is that when you're on the ISS, you actually get to have a continually rotating crew. So every three months you get a change of scenery. So if you don't like one of your crewmates very much, you, you know, you just wait. It's like weather in Florida, you just wait and they'll change. Um, and the second thing that makes this so different when you're going to Mars and really makes it a much more high stress and high pressure situation on these astronauts mentally and emotionally is that this is, this will be the farthest away from earth that humans have ever gone. They are going to be so far away that you won't even be able to look back on earth and, and see, you won't be able to see any of the details or the specifics of the planet. You won't be able to just make a quick radio or, or um, video call home to talk to your family or anything like that. You're going to be as removed as anyone more removed than anyone else has ever been from humanity. And I think that that will take a toll on the mental and emotional well-being of astronauts. And it's going to be really, really important that the crew on a mission to Mars can rely on one another and can support one another in that, in that manner. 
All right. 20 years from now, Elon Musk offers one-way tickets to Mars. This is a question from Space Cadet Visto2D. Are you buying that ticket? I can't say for certain whether or not I would because a lot could change in 20 years. But what I can say is that if I was offered a one-way ticket to Mars right now, today, I would not take it. And the reason, one of the big reasons for that is because I think that we're not at a level right now. And I think a lot of people, a lot of experts would agree with me on this. We're not at a level where we can sustain human life for a reasonable period of time on the surface of Mars. We can't allow someone to, to live there for the rest of their natural life because we just don't have the technology or the setup or the capabilities yet in place. And the reason that's really important to me is because, A, I really like being alive. And it's B, fun. it is fun, right? At least a lot of the time. But B, because I think that there is no quicker way to lose public support and public engagement and excitement for space exploration than by having a tragic death of an astronaut in space. And I think that that's not something that I'd be willing to, to, to do to the space program mm-hmm. and to the public. Mm-hmm. Um, by by making that sort of a decision. Yeah, that's why we worked so hard to bring Mark Watney back, right? Because I know, right? That would, be, that would be a tragedy. Um, otherwise- yeah, no one wants that. But Mars, like Mars is freezing cold. There's no air. The gravity is super weak. It's red dust all over the place. Why do you want to go to Mars? I mean, isn't Earth good enough for you? We've got water, we've got trees, we have we have zoos, we we have like <laughs> so much cool stuff. Why do you want to go to Mars so bad? I know, and and here's the thing: there's so much about Mars that is so hostile to life. Uh, in addition to what you said, one of the really big issues with Mars is that Mars doesn't actually have a magnetic field that protects the planet and, and the inhabitants of the planet from radiation. So it's a really dangerous place to live. And to me, that right there is one of the big reasons to go to Mars. And one of the reasons that I think that Mars is such an important goal for me personally, and even more so for the space program, because here's the thing. We get a lot of incredible technology from space exploration. There is an insane return on investment that we get from space exploration. Honestly, it impacts our daily lives every single day. What you and I are doing right now, where we're able to be sitting in separate states and we have people from all around the world who are joining us, watching us talk to one another and share information freely. This is a direct result of space exploration and the spin-off technologies that we've received because of that. It impacts our lives in every single way, medical, agricultural, technological, all of these ways. And the way that we get these kind of advancements from space exploration is by challenging ourselves, by pushing ourselves, by asking ourselves, what is the most difficult situation and scenario that we could find? And how do we overcome that so we can not only survive, but thrive? And we're not going to continue to get the maximum benefit and return from our investments in space exploration if we're not constantly pushing for the next thing and asking ourselves, can we go farther? Can we do better? And I truly think that the difficulty of putting humans on Mars and returning them is is reason enough, reasonable enough alone to want to do it. Um, 
That said, I also have a history of my, my research experience when I was in college was in astrobiology and I was studying the possibility that life could have existed on the surface of Mars a long time ago in the past or the potential that it might still exist somewhere hidden really well on that planet. And so I think that that's another really great reason to go and explore Mars because there's just a lot to be discovered and found out there. Absolutely. But as the space cadets pointed out, there is cheese on planet Earth. And so I'm personally not going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> if there's a Martian cheese, like I'll be interested. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. I'll let you go there first. But space cadets. What cadet, about the moon, though? I've heard that there's a lot of cheese on the moon. You know so what? We checked that. Ability. And that was, uh, that was the biggest lie that humanity has ever told that the moon is not made out of cheese. And well, so and I'm so what have not I been interested. doing with my life? I'm done. I. Listen, just <laughs> trust me, Earth is the better cheese anyway, because we, there's moisture and there's bacteria and there's uh, rennet and there's all the things. So All important things, for sure. All important <laughs> things. Uh, Space Cadet Zero Skull is asking, uh, should we really send a human to Mars at this stage or should we send, uh, he suggests, a chimp, a cat, or a shrew? And bring them back safely before we we send humans. Like, what what's the progression here? Should we start with humans trying to go to Mars? Right, which it's a question that makes a lot of sense because in the early days of space exploration, that's that's how we did it. Was we initially sent other animals to space first? Um, I would say that this is a little bit of a different situation than the early days of space exploration for a couple reasons. One of them is that the primary, one of the primary reasons to send animals to space first was because we just weren't even entirely sure at that early stage in the space program, we weren't sure how space and microgravity was going to affect the living things and especially mammals. And so it made a lot more sense to try it out on a um, a smaller animal. And that's another one of the reasons that that was beneficial is because it was a lot easier, for example, to launch a, a small monkey or a small dog or something like that, rather than a full size human being. Nowadays, we don't really have those same um, prerogatives to do that because we, we know to, to a, a pretty major extent, we know how space is going to impact people. We've been studying the impact of outer space on humans for, for decades now. In fact, we've had continuous human habitation on the International Space Station for 20 years, which is like just a fact that blows my mind because it <laughs> means that anyone who's 20 years old or younger has never lived on Earth at the same time as every other uh, living human. Like, that's crazy, but it also means that we have a lot more information. And second off, we um, we have much better launch uh, capabilities now than we used to. And so while weight is still an issue and it is still an expense, it's not as big of an issue that we would need to um, sacrifice the concept of sending a human instead of a smaller critter. That said, additionally, Mars is a little bit of a different story because it's so far away that it makes a lot more sense to send someone who has the ability to make decisions for themselves, I suppose, because when you're talking about a 40-minute time delay, you can't have um, a, a, an animal that's being taken care of through commands that are being relayed. Uh, it just wouldn't be, I think, feasible. <clears throat> Excuse me. It wouldn't be feasible. For sure. 
Yeah, for sure. And by the way, for the past 20 years, every time you say, well, everybody on Earth, you're actually missing a few human beings. It does not encapsulate all of the human race. So uh, we have to we have to say everybody in the universe. You have to modify <laughs> that phrase. Uh, let's talk about your research. You mentioned you're you're very interested in astrobiology as an undergraduate. Uh, you're starting graduate school this fall. Congratulations. Uh, welcome to the nightmare that is graduate school. I wish you the best in that uh what will you be studying where will you be going yeah so i i'm still in the process of applying to graduate schools so it's a little early for congratulations yeah. okay today, okay I'll, fair fair i'll preemptively take them um that said right now i am working actually as a research scientist at harvard medical school where i work in a lab uh, an immunology molecular biology and genetics lab that focuses um, a big part of what we do in my lab uh, is look at the human genome and look at DNA that previously has been thought to be kind of like junk DNA that doesn't really do anything. And my lab thinks that that's not quite accurate and that a lot of this DNA that hasn't been delved into and explored um, as, as deeply as other parts of the human genome, that it actually has the ability to impact us in, in really immense ways and especially in relation to immunology, so the way that that we react in diseased and ill states. So it's um, it's work that's a little bit, it's not quite related to space in the sense that my previous research when I was in the astrobiology field was like you could you could look at it and say like that's how that relates to space. But I still think that this job is it's such an incredible opportunity for my career, and it also is teaching me a lot of skills and um, tools that I think will be very helpful for my future career, both as a scientist and hopefully someday a scientist doing research on Mars. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of Mars landing, uh, Space Cadet Astro B is asking, you're very interested in the, the possibility of past life on Mars and present life on Mars, but won't we start contaminating the place as soon as we get there? How can we balance the human exploration of Mars with trying to understand the past history of life on Mars? Absolutely. So it's it's a really good question. And it's one that has been thought about a lot by, by people in the industry. And thankfully, it's not as much of a problem when it comes down to the nitty gritty specifics as you'd imagine. And the reason for that is that Mars is such a hostile environment that the vast majority of things that we would take with us, um, microbes, viruses, anything like that, that we would as humans naturally have with us, because as many of us know, but some people might not know, we're just swarming with these things all the time, like bacteria, viruses, you've got so it's many so of them. Gross. It's, it's gross when you think about it, but it's also super important. It turns out that a lot of them are really helpful. Um, and, and are a part of like symbiosis with humans. But that said, you can't remove those from humans. They're important to us. So instead you have to look at two factors here. One of them is saying, how can we make sure to try and do like strict decontamination protocols? Um, similar to actually, they were pretty careful with that when we did moon landings because they just weren't sure how that would impact that. So that's been thought about a lot. Um, and the second reason we don't have to worry as much about this is, like I said, Mars is super hostile. So most of that stuff that we bring with us, even if it were to get out onto the surface of Mars, it wouldn't be able to survive. And the reality of the, the matter is that there's there are very, very few species here on Earth 
that would be able to survive on Mars. That's actually what my um, research in astrobiology was cool. focused on was a specific uh, bacterial species called serratia liquefaciens that has the ability to survive under simulated Martian surface conditions. And it is such a unique species because it has this ability to survive under these low pressures, these low oxygen, all of these different um, really difficult conditions. And that research showed me how difficult it would be for pretty much anything else to survive. And so when it comes down to it, we don't have to be too worried about um, between decontamination and just the difficulty of Mars itself, I think we're going to be fine. Okay, great. So we can turn Mars into our our the Earth landfill, and it we're totally cool because we're not going to no. contaminate. No, 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 no. Okay, <laughs> I we're don't endorse in, that idea. <laughs> okay, fair, fair, fair. That is not an astronaut Abby approved message. Uh, we're almost out of time, so we we only have a couple more questions. We've got one from Daniel Sorkin, who's asking. Is there any particular spot or area of Mars that you'd like to explore? And on a scale of one to a million, how excited are you for the Perseverance landing coming up next week? Oh, I mean, the excitement that I feel for the Perseverance landing, it can't be quantified. It's like astronomical scales of excitement that here. There's number three, number three. All oh, right, we've got three <laughs> puns, folks. That's not bad in a half hour. <laughs> It's, I think it's pretty stellar. Um, Four. <laughs> so to answer the rest of that question, though, I'll do it quickly because we're running out of time. I think that the poles of Mars are really, really incredibly interesting and hold a lot of intrigue. Um, so one of the poles on Mars is mostly frozen carbon dioxide. The other one is carbon dioxide and does also have some water, some frozen water. And seasonally, it's believed that that during certain times of the years, those poles tend to, um, just like here on Earth, tend to have phase changes and potentially allow for running water in certain areas of the surface of Mars. And so I think that exploring, especially near um I think it's the the southern pole that has water, but I could be wrong off the top of my head. I think that that is one of the most exciting and engaging ideas for where to where to send a human mission the first time off. All right. So last question. You get to go to Mars. You've been selected. You're going to explore the southern polar regions to search for signs of life. You only get to take one cheese with you. What is it? I would take, I'm a diehard for uh, Syrah um, coated Toscano, which wow. is a cheese that you can get at Trader Joe's. And it nice. is just like, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a cheese that I, I have to put this plug out there. I think everyone would like. It's a cheese that people who don't like stinky cheeses like, people who do like it. Like it's, it's the people's It's fun for the whole family. Opinion. Exactly. That is fantastic. I will definitely check that out. Thank you for that suggestion. Astronaut Abby, Abigail Harrison, thank you so much for joining the show. Where can people find your book and more about you? Yeah, so my book, Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars, is available. Is. <laughs> I never get tired of doing this. Because doing that. I can't oh, believe yeah, no, I've got my book right me. here so I can go, ha, look, ha. we can do it, ha. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. No, no, no. Every time. Hey. Does it ever get old? No, never gets no. old. Good. And then when you have your second book, you do you do both hands. You go like, Wajah. 
Can't wait for that for sure. Yes. Um, until I have two books, this one book that I've published, you can find literally anywhere that books are sold. It's available online. It's available at bookstores you'd go to. My recommendation would be to do call your local indie bookstore and ask them mm-hmm. if they can do a curbside if you want to pick it up there because I'm a big fan of supporting uh, local businesses and especially small bookstores. Um, if you have any questions or want to follow along with my journey, you can find me at Astronaut Abby on pretty much every social media channel. And you can also find my nonprofit, The Mars Generation, once again, on all the social medias as The Mars Generation. That's right. And please, everyone, Space Cadets, contribute to that 501c3, The Mars Generation. Astronaut Abby, thank you so much for joining us on Space Radio in this wonderful conversation and the great cheese selection, which is basically the only reason I bring on guests <laughs> is to get new suggestions for cheese. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a blast. All right, Space Cadets. That was a really fun interview, and that made me really hungry. <laughs> Maybe really hungry. And tonight's cheese is brought to us by Shelburne Farms. They're a small farm up in upstate Vermont. They are a uh, United States World Heritage Site or National Historic Landmark, a 1,400 acre farm. They're a nonprofit educating for sustainability. You check out their website. That's S H E L B U R N E, Shelburne Farms in Vermont. They do all sorts of cool education and outreach, not just about cheese, but about sustainability and agricultural processes. Uh, thanks to my, my sponsors today, Dom's Cheese. That's D O M S Cheese.com. They provided this for me this smoked cheddar, oh, made from raw milk folks so this is the real deal this is the cheese that our ancestors had this is this is amazing it says best of use by june of 2021 i don't think that's going to be a problem for me so let's open up so we've got a smoked cheddar and like smoked anything like you know you can buy that liquid smoke you know just put that liquid smoke on anything and then it is amazing it's because smoke makes everything taste better and I don't think they used liquid smoke for this. I think they used actual. Wow. Oh, sorry. I just opened it up. It smells like someone like lit a cheese fire. Oh, like, but not right here. That's too, too intense, too smoky. Like someone lit a cheese fire in the next room. Like, like, like there's a cheese, a chimney made of cheese and there's a fire at the bottom. This I'm getting too carried away with this metaphor. It smells amazing. D D O M S cheese.com. Dom's cheese. That's who gave me this. Mm-hmm. Mm. I'm i I'm sorry, Space Cadets. I'm gonna have to eat this one in private. Yeah, I gotta go. I gotta go so I can eat the rest of this block. I just there are no words. There are no words. Please go. Mm. SpaceRadioShow.com I'm going to try to end the show with my mouth full of cheese Go to Patreon.com slash PMSutter to keep supporting this show or you can do a super chat on the live stream right now if you want Unfortunately this broadcast is almost done Thank you to my guest today Abigail Harrison Astronaut Abby 
Thank you to Nancy Graziano for producing the show, Wrangling the Space Guests. Thank you to you for contributing on patreon.com slash Sutter. We record every Thursday. I'm not going to do a show next week, uh, but I will be back in two weeks. You can check out the show archives, spaceradioshow.com. Ask questions. We'll do a ton of questions in a couple weeks from now, I promise. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you in a couple weeks. And remember, science is for sharing, but not this cheese. This one's just for me. 